um, at the fact that I have to uh, spend another another week there. But um, <clears throat> um, I wanted to let us look at it again in full. We're not going to go um, back, but just for a moment, and um, and we're going to see uh, Jesus. I'm t- kind of turning a corner um, in the next uh, few weeks. So we saw in the beginning of this chapter, Jesus comfort John the Baptist as he was alone and confused in prison. He was awaiting his execution. And Jesus' words to him were life, to continue on in faith in the midst of your confusion and your suffering. No, John, you are not crazy. You just don't see clearly yet. And Jesus then praises John and uses him as an example of those who enter the kingdom violently, not physically violent towards others or even physically violent towards oneself, but with passion, with energy out of a spirit of determination to get into the kingdom of God, to be counted as one of his children. And then using John as an example of one who passionately sprints, he turns to the crowd and says, but what can I compare you to? Ah, I know, a fickle, hard to get along with child. But he doesn't stop there, does he? As Ryan just read for us, Jesus starts denouncing and condemning their cities, comparing them to the Gentile, pagan, unbelieving cities, to Capernaum, perhaps the most visited city by Jesus. He quotes a passage from Isaiah, an Old Testament prophet, which which is, is a passage where God condemns the king of Babylon, the king of Babylon, who at the time was the enemy of God's people. I'm going to let that sink in just a little bit. These people think they are God's gift from heaven to humanity. And here is Jesus saying that you are instruments being used by God's enemy. You are no closer to the kingdom of heaven than the pagans you complain about. The pagans and heathens and unbelievers you condemn, you're no better than they are. You think you will rise to heaven, you'll be thrown down into the pits of hell. I don't know about you, but that makes me pause. even makes me tremble. How can one be so deceived that they think they are on the road to glory, but in reality, they are on their way to eternal punishment? An entire generation, Jesus says, was deceived into thinking they were on God's side, but in reality, they were sons of the devil. As a reference to John chapter 8, verses 39 through 47, for anyone who wants to look it up later. May God have mercy upon us to lead us in the way of true righteousness, so that we ourselves are not deceived. How can we make sure we are not deceived? We'll put that on the shelf and deal with it more in just a minute. Jesus' denouncing monologue hits its apex when he says that it will be more bearable for Sodom than for Capernaum. Capernaum was his base of operations. They knew Jesus well. And he says Sodom will be better off on the day of judgment than you. That is a powerful statement. I mean, whatever pieces of their minds were left from being blown away by Jesus' words before are now completely shredded and in pieces. I mean, this is unbelievable. Sodom? Sodom was legendary as a place God destroyed so completely 
that for centuries afterwards, it still caused fear in people. An entire valley annihilated because of humanity's sin, treachery, and perversion. And yet, what does Jesus say? Jesus says that it will be better for Sodom. Why? Because Sodom, if the works that I did in your town, I had done in Sodom, they would have believed. They would have turned. So for the people of Jesus' generation, their unbelief, their hard-hearted self-righteousness was more horrifying, more serious, more offensive to God than the sins of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. You should be shocked right now. I draw two conclusions from this. There are two huge theological boulders that come from that statement. And what I mean by that is that we gain some significant theological perspective from this sentence. We can gain some real understanding about how God views the situation, how he thinks about the condition of these people and perhaps our condition. First, the comparison Jesus makes between Sodom and Capernaum and the condemnation he pronounces means that God cares more about the unbelief of a homosexual than he does about their actual sinful activity of homosexuality. I'm going to say that again. The comparison that Jesus makes between Sodom and Capernaum and the condemnation that he pronounces upon Capernaum means that God cares more about the unbelief of a homosexual than he does about their sinful activity of homosexuality. Now, please don't hear what I'm not saying. Okay, I, can, I can't spend enough time qualifying what I'm saying, so just hear what I am saying, okay? God takes more seriously a homosexual's unbelief than he does their actual sinful lifestyle. For the last several decades, conservative Christianity has preached in such a way to make it out like this. If only homosexuals would change their ways, then they would be okay. And if they change their ways and live according to God's plan for sexual ethics, then America would not be in the bullseye of God's judgment. No, that's actually not true. The people of Jesus's generation were golden according to the letter of God's law, but missed God who was standing right before them. The unforgivable sin is the egregious, insane rejection of who God is, that he gives you life. The unforgivable sin is unbelief. The unforgivable sin is not murder. It's not even suicide. It's not homosexuality. The unforgivable sin is the rejection of who God is. So for Jesus, for him to say that Sodom is going to be less offensive to God on the day of judgment than Capernaum means that the act of homosexuality is a smaller insignificance to God than the unbelief of anyone. Anyone who has unbelief, anybody who rejects Christ, anybody who doesn't love God, 
That is a more serious crime than the homosexuals. That's what this means. For the person who says, no, God, I don't trust you. I don't believe you, and I don't love you. Your words don't mean anything to me. Those are the thoughts and ideas of Satan. And it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom than for that person. One more comment on this paragraph before we move on. Matthew introduces Jesus' monologue with this sentence. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done. Why? Because they didn't repent. They didn't turn from their wickedness. They didn't turn from their unbelief. They didn't turn from their self-righteousness. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works were done. I mean, I mean think about that. Miracles. Miracles are not enough to bring someone to faith. I'm going to say that again. Miracles are not enough to bring someone to faith. Someone might think, oh, if only Jesus were to come before me, stand here face to face, then I would believe. Or a parent of an unbelieving child might be tempted to think, if only Jesus were to walk into their house and show, them, show himself to them, then they would believe. Then they would know that Jesus is the truth. If you recall, I opened this message talking about John the Baptist. Do you remember who he is? John the Baptist baptized Jesus, and he doubted. John the Baptist knew the scriptures that they pointed to Jesus being the Messiah, and yet he doubted. Hundreds of thousands of people lived in Palestine in Jesus' day. How many heard him? How many walked the streets with him? How many heard him teach in the temple and the synagogues? Or saw him heal people with their own eyes? How many of them were the recipients of his healings or had loved ones who were healed by him? And how many of those very same people refused to believe he was who he said he was and rejected him? and refused to believe that his teaching was truth. Sometimes we get deluded in a romantic fantasy-like thinking that all those who saw Jesus and witnessed his miracles believed and became followers. And we just think, man, it would be amazing just to walk the road with him and to see all of his miracles. Wouldn't that be something? Thousands of people saw his miracles and didn't believe. This sentence is a reality check to that fantasy. Many, many people who saw Jesus perform miracles were more than happy to talk about Jesus as just the new craze, just a new celebrity on the scene. They were happy to take free food, watch the spectacle, be entertained. They were content to take the healing and go about with their lives while never believing and following Jesus as Savior, as Lord, as giver of life. This sentence shows us that our biggest problem is not that we've not seen or heard Jesus in the flesh. 
this sentence and this paragraph as a whole teaches us that Jesus, that our, excuse me, that our biggest problem is our lack of faith. Not that we haven't seen him face to face. We will, we will see God's remedy for this, this in the next section. How can it be? I mean, how can it be that you had God in the flesh walking on earth and people interacted with him and still didn't believe? I mean, I mean, think about that. Like, how many atheists or agnostics or even just people who don't care, if you talk to them, they say, well, if Jesus were to come stand here, well, then I would believe. If God would write his name in the sky, then I would believe. That's a lie. That's not what it takes to believe. So what does it take? Picking back up in verse 25, I'll, I'll read this again for us. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious, gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. First, what does Jesus mean when he says that God the Father has hidden these things from the wise and understanding and yet revealed them to little children? What are these things that he's talking about? What is it that God has hidden from the wise and, and the people with understanding and yet have revealed to little children? Well, these things are the significance of Jesus' miracles. Many people saw the miracles, but yet they didn't understand the significance of them. They didn't understand what they meant. So they didn't understand that Jesus was the Messiah, that the kingdom of God was at hand. And so the wise and the understanding do not see the significance of Jesus and his ministry on earth. But little children do? I mean, what does that mean? What does Jesus mean by little children get this and yet the wise and understanding don't? Well, certainly it does not mean that only kids can see the kingdom of God. Right. But it does mean that those who or excuse me, but does it mean that those who think like little children, I mean, they can like, OK, I can't be a little child again. But if I think like a little child again, then I can see the significance. Does it mean just being simple minded, having blind faith, those who need no argument? How can that be when Solomon praises wisdom? He considers, he praises the ability to, to, to look at a situation and be able to weigh the options and, and weigh the things of significance and meaning and boil it down to the truth. That's, that, that's part of being virtuous. <clears throat> How about when Paul condemns 
immature adults who are thinking of behaving like children and encourages them to grow up and be men. I mean, mean, what kind of children are we talking about here that God says these things have been revealed to these little children? I mean, Jesus just condemned this entire generation for being like little children, right? I mean, we we just read that. We talked about that last week. So here Jesus is saying these things, the significance of the Messiah being here has been hidden from the wise and understanding and it pleased God to reveal it to little children. And yet just a couple paragraphs up, he compared the generation to little children and it was a bad thing. What is going on? I mean, perhaps Jesus just means the really smart intellectuals are incapable of seeing the truth of the kingdom of God. Maybe that's what he means. Except some of the most brilliant Western minds through the ages have been devout Christians. <laughs> I mean, the Apostle Paul, some of them says that he is the greatest thinker of all time. Or St. Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, Martin Luther, John Calvin, C.S. Lewis, and I could go on. Men who God used their brilliant minds to delve deep into the mysteries of God to help other less brilliant brothers and sisters like myself to understand things that are otherwise much too complicated for me. So what does this reference to little children and the wise and understanding mean? Here's what I think it means. Children are open to wonder. They're open to learning. They're open to seeing things in a new way. They live their life searching for things that blow their mind. And they're so easily, they're so easily in awe. I used to make the joke whenever my son was, you know, one and a half to two years old, he could pass out from excitement just looking at a white wall. I mean, it was just like the world is just amazing. Children aren't stout or unmovable in their biases. They're not brittle yet in their thinking. They don't have systems of thought that have to be checked or gratified in order to accept something. We examine a truth that someone is teaching us in Scripture and like, well, that that goes against this over here, so I'm just going to throw it away. A child is eager to learn. They're learning all the time. I think in this way, Jesus is actually describing those who are wise. James will say in his letter, along with fear of the Lord, true wisdom is having an open mind. It's being willing to entertain an idea and examine it before you cast judgment upon it. Childlike faith is not being simple-minded as someone would have us believe. It is being open-minded It is seeking to be filled, and it is trusting our Father completely. So don't let the phrase childlike faith keep you from diving deep into God's words and the wonders of his creation. The reality is that childlike faith always wants more wonder. It always wants more of good things. It always wants more joy. It always wants more satisfying thrills. And we who God has given us the knowledge of God and his word, we can find those things 
through knowing God more in deeper ways and more intimate ways as we study him and pursue him and seek him. So finally, we reach the apex of the chapter. And we'll have to wait till next week to, to look at it more fully, as I mentioned earlier. But for our purposes and to bring this morning's message some closure, we still have yet to answer the question I pose of what keeps what can keep us from being deceived like Jesus's generation? Jesus's generation who were looking for the Messiah for hundreds of years and missed it when he came. Jesus's generation that witnessed miracles, witnessed people being raised from the dead and yet still didn't believe. Why is it that God chose to reveal his kingdom to little children and not the wise and understanding? I find it interesting that Jesus calls this fact that God reveals his kingdom to little children and, and hides it from the wise and understanding. He, he calls it God's gracious will. Such was your gracious will. Meaning, it, Lord, it pleased you to hide it from these people and reveal it to these people. Isn't that interesting? It is God's grace that he reveals his kingdom to anyone. It is God's grace that he opens anybody's eyes to see the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. And it is his grace that reveals his kingdom to those who believe. He says, no one knows the Son except the Father. Nobody knows who Jesus is. That is the Messiah except for the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And then what does he say after that? What does he say after that? He says, come. No one can know the Father except the Son. No one can know uh, the Son except for the Father. No one can know us except that I reveal us to them. So come. Come and know. Come. I mean, it's so simple and yet so profound. No one in and of themselves can do what it takes to come. Why? To come means to admit your guilt. To come means to glory in your moral inadequacies. It's to accept that you are morally bankrupt, that you have nothing to offer God. You don't have a leg to stand on before him. No one does that naturally. We are full of ourselves. We're constantly trying to prove how we're right. We're constantly trying to rationalize our bad decisions. And yet Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the earth. To take Christ's yoke upon you means to carry your cross. Nobody wants to do that in their own mind. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, nobody wants to turn to Christ because it means you need a Savior. It means you're broken. It means you've accepted your sinfulness. You've accepted the fact that in and of yourself, you've rejected God. 
So no one wants to do that. No one wants to do that apart from the work of the Holy Spirit of God in their hearts, turning them to Christ, showing them their need and drawing them to the Savior of their souls. So the answer to not being deceived and to thinking you are good when you are not good, to think you're a Christian bound for heaven when actually you're in the bed of unbelief with Satan, is actually to come to Christ. If you think, I've already done that, beware. Beware. True believers, God's children, those who have had the kingdom revealed to them, will come when they're bidden. They always come to the arms of their Savior. Part of the problem that I experienced growing up in church is that I just heard come to Jesus over and over and over and over again. And I was like, yeah, but, but now what? I missed it. It's always about coming to Jesus. And if you ever get to the point where you want more than that, you've missed the boat. If you hear a call to come to Christ and you feel it's just old news, or I've been there, I've done that, or maybe worse, worse, you don't feel anything, beware of your own heart. Beware of the state of your own soul. You need to come all the more. It is vital that you come to Christ. Come to Christ every day. Come to Christ every hour. Every moment, come to him. Come to know his grace. Come to know his mercy. Come to know his love again and again and again and be filled. Do not harden your heart and deceive yourself to think that I've been there, I've done that, now what? Turning to Jesus is something you do every moment. You are constantly turning to him as a savior of your soul. You're turning to him as your provider. You're turning to him as your friend. You're turning to him as your brother, as your king. You're turning to him as your all in all. Turn to Jesus and find rest for your souls. And he will reveal to you the state of your heart. He will reveal to you the goodness of his father, the love of his father. But if, if you find yourself Hmm. Well, that sermon's done. Beware. Because you could be in the bed of the generation of Jesus who saw the miracles and it wasn't enough. There was a new prophet walking the streets. Isn't that interesting? I've got to go fix dinner. The question for you this morning is where is your heart? When you hear Jesus bid you to come, do you feel anything? Or is it just another day, just another Sunday, just another sermon? There is hope for you if you turn to come. Let's pray.